0: Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, Senior Pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in DePere, Missouri. It's great to be with you this morning to study God's Word with you. And a special Happy Mother's Day to all of our moms out there. Hope that you have a great day today. As we normally do in this class, we're going to be looking at the three scripture readings that are assigned not for today, but for the following Sunday, May 17. We will be looking, therefore, at Acts 17. Verses 16 through 31. We'll be looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 22. And for the gospel lesson, we'll be looking at John 14, verses 15 through 21. But before we do that, let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we continue to thank and praise you for the gift of abundant eternal life through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his life and death and resurrection, and for the forgiveness and everlasting life that is ours through him. And we thank you also for the privilege of being your instruments to share that wonderful news with the world around us and everyone we encounter. We thank you also for your life-giving and life-sustaining word, and for the opportunity to study it here. We pray you bless us as sending your Holy Spirit to guide us and lead us in this study that we might continue to grow in our knowledge and understanding of your word and also of your will for us as your children here in this world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we get into the word of God, and we're going to be looking, as I said, first of all, at Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 31, uh, in this time following Easter. Uh, on a number of the Sundays. The Old Testament lesson is replaced with a reading from the book of Acts so that we can at least study a part of the book of Acts during the course of the year. And I'd like to, first of all, give a little background as to what has happened uh, a little bit earlier in Acts chapter 17. Uh, First of all, Paul and Silas were in Thessalonica Uh, The gospel was having great success there. There were many converts made, and that caused the Jews to become jealous and uh, took some of the rabble-rousers together with them and formed a mob. They went to the house of Jason, who apparently was uh, housing uh, Paul and Silas, trying to find Paul and Silas there and did not find them. uh, in fact, Paul and Silas then later escaped by night to Berea, and they again were seeing great success in the preaching of the gospel in Berea. But the Jews from Thessalonica uh, weren't satisfied that uh, Paul and Silas were gone uh, from Thessalonica, and they came to Berea to harass Paul there. Um, the uh, Uh, again, started stirring up the crowds there against uh, Paul and Silas. And Paul's fellow workers immediately sent him out of Berea to Athens. And it's there that we pick up the story uh, in our lesson for today. Paul is in Athens. He is awaiting the arrival of Silas and Timothy. And so today we uh, start off in Acts 17. We want to start with verse 16 and uh, go through this together. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Let's stop there and just talk about just a little bit. Um, Paul, of course, again, is waiting for them. Uh, The them is Silas and Timothy, and he is in Athens. And Paul is agitated, uh, you might say, as he looks around and sees that the city is full of idols. It was actually a center, a a real focal point, you might say, for all kinds of philosophies, uh, religions. Uh, There were many idol statues and temples Uh, The most prominent idol was that of Athena. Of course, Athens gaining its name from uh, her, that she was the, you might say, the the uh, patron god of of Athens. And her temple, of course, was the Parthenon uh, up on the Areopagus. So uh, Paul is agitated when he sees all of these idols. It says full of idols. And so he is in the synagogue, and the synagogue, again, Obviously, is not a temple. It is a, a house of worship. It is a house of prayer. Um, it is the place, of course, where Scripture is read and um, commented upon. We have that, that famous incident where Jesus is in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth and they hand him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and it's open to what we today know as Isaiah 61. Uh, he reads it, uh, talking about the Spirit of the Lord being upon, uh, being, uh, the Lord anointing him with the Spirit, and uh, anyway, closes up the scroll and says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, applying Isaiah to him, Isaiah's prophecy to himself. The synagogue was also a very uh, vibrant social connection for people. And um, there were lively discussions and debates uh, there uh, uh, upon Scripture itself. So it was a very uh, vibrant, robust place. And so Paul is in the synagogue. This was his method of operation. In most places, he, he would go to the synagogue and would uh, reason with the people there. In other words, you can, you can imagine Paul is going into the Old Testament, is pointing out how it all Uh, is directed toward Jesus, that the Old Testament prophecies find their yes in Jesus. Uh, He is reasoning there with Jews and devout persons. Now, the devout persons uh, would be uh, Gentiles who believed in God. They were uh, sometimes called God-fearers in the Bible. And in the marketplace, the agora in Greek, uh, where all the action was. And notice he's there every day with those who happen to be there. There's a great model there, isn't there, for us today, for the church today, uh, not to be secluded, not to be isolated off by itself, but to be in the marketplace, to be uh, where all the vibrant activity is and there with the gospel, there with the word of God. And we endeavor to do that in every way possible through all the media, of uh, print, of social media, uh, all kinds of electronic uh, applications and places where we can be with the word of hope, the gospel itself. That was Paul's, uh, uh, again, method of operation, to be in that marketplace with the people and the gospel. Uh, Verse uh, 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And uh, that was, of course, most likely in the agora, in the marketplace. Um, we don't have a lot of time to go through these these uh, philosophies. Uh, Epicureanism was a seeking of pleasure uh, in life, uh, but not, not in a uh, sensual uh, sort of way. Uh, not in a you know in a in a way we would uh, associate. Uh, with pornography or loose morals or things of that nature. It was seeking uh, pleasure and the avoidance of of unpleasantness uh, in life. And so that was uh, uh, basically Epicureanism, that that was your goal in life. Um, And then Stoicism emphasized the the very rational and intellectual aspects of our nature. Uh, People were encouraged to accept their fate in life, and and to be calm, and uh, to uh, and resolute, we might say, uh, in living life, uh, whatever their lot in life would be. Uh, we have a phrase, "remain stoic," that comes from that, in other words, not to show uh, emotional reaction and to react uh, uh, excessively to to things when they happen. Uh, so these two philosophies were two of the very main central philosophies in Athens at this time and uh, uh, you know re- uh, rhetoricians uh, pr- uh, were you can imagine uh, debating and, and putting forth these different philosophies so it was a very vibrant uh, you might say intellectual uh, religious uh, small r religious uh, type of environment. And so some said, uh, these Epicureans and Stoic philosophers, some said, what does this babbler, this is referring to Paul, what does this babbler wish to say? A you know, condescending uh, attitude toward Paul. Others said he seems to be preaching of foreign divinities. Now, it's kind of interesting. Uh, it says, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Foreign deities. Now, it may be, some have speculated, That what Paul was preaching was Jesus, of course, and they mistook what he said about the resurrection to be a foreign goddess, Anastasia, because resurrection in Greek is Anastasis, and some may have misunderstood thinking that Paul was preaching Jesus and a foreign goddess named Anastasia. So that's the explanation there. They thought he was preaching foreign gods because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And of course, of course Paul was. I mean, that is the heart and core of our Christian faith. So, they, verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, that is the hill of Ares, A-R-E-S, and that was the god of war back in uh, in in uh, ancient times associated also with the Roman god Mars. So that's where we get the phrase Mars Hill and uh, just as a little aside I was privileged uh, last year uh, to be able to go on a Footsteps of Saint Paul tour and you actually today in Athens can climb the Areopagus. The Areopagus there uh, is actually not the, not the tallest hill uh, in Athens but you can climb the Areopagus and see the remains of the Parthenon and you can actually walk on Mars Hill. Uh, There are two different stairways leading up to it, and this is where they take Paul in Athens uh, to have a teaching, or uh, I'm sorry, a hearing you might say, uh, to hear Paul teaching. So um, they, they take him up to the Areopagus, this high place, and to Mars Hill, and and they say, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. Well, yes, absolutely. He brings brings God's truth to their ears uh, in contrast to what they have been teaching. Isn't it great, though, that Paul gets this hearing uh, in front of all of these uh, philosophers and all these other uh, so called religious people, and they're basically giving him uh, the, the full floor here to say exactly what he is teaching. They said, We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. So they're curious. You know, this is something new, and it's amazing the way people are drawn at times uh, to something new. Okay? But in this case, that's a great thing. And it says, verse 21, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And boy, isn't that the case uh, today. Uh, Stop for a moment and just comment on this, that uh, apparently Athens was, as I said before, a hotbed for philosophers and the debate of of ideologies and and teachings. Um, And just like today, People are always looking for something new. You know, it, what we have had traditionally, especially when we speak of the biblical faith, uh, handed down through all the generations, uh, to some people that just can't be it. it there has to be something new, uh, and they're attracted to it sometimes just because of that. Um, it has to be, you know, it has to be new and bold, and therefore it, it would be certainly in their minds superior uh, to the Christian faith. And so we see that back then, we see the same thing today. But, as you can imagine, Paul, verse 22, standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Well, uh, he starts off with a compliment here, doesn't he? Uh, He could have started off very harshly and said, you know, how could you be so uh, naive? How could you be uh, so uninformed about the true God? and the things that you worship uh, are simply man-made entities. No, he doesn't do that. He starts off in a very positive way with them, speaking the truth, but in a very positive way. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, and they certainly were in a, in a small r sense. Uh, they were dedicated you know, to a set of beliefs and a life that flowed from those beliefs, uh, the, the different philosophies and ideologies. So Paul is not speaking of Christianity here. He's not saying that they are very religious in the sense of Christianity. Why did Paul see, uh, see that they are very religious? He says in verse 23, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, and so they were in plain display as Paul was passing by, I found also an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Well, that tells you pretty much all you need to know. About how uh, how, how uh, many different philosophies and ideologies were there? Uh, they had this altar with uh, inscription on it, dedicated to an unknown god. That's just so that if, in the midst of all of these different gods and, and so-called deities, if they had missed one, uh, they would uh, uh, cover it uh, by having this altar known to an uh, rather there to an unknown god, and so. You can see how bad things are that they even want to, you know, make sure they haven't missed anyone, uh, any uh, unknown God or any of the gods, so-called gods. uh, They're going to have one there just in case. So then, uh, what therefore, Paul says, you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Isn't that brilliant that Paul uses that altar to an unknown God in a very clever way? He says, let me tell you about this God who certainly is unknown to them at that point. So, verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Notice Paul goes right back to creation and cites God as, you might say, he says here, the Lord of heaven and earth, the one who made the world and everything in it, he does not live in temples made by man. So Paul, you know, it almost follows that that would be the case, doesn't it? That, that the God who has made everything is not going to be confined to a temple made by man. The pagans, in contrast, usually made these temples uh, for their gods to occupy or live in. And Paul, in a, in a sense here, almost diminishes their gods, you know, uh, as, as living in merely in temples. And Paul says, no, that's just not the way it is. The God who made everything uh, that we see around us, the God of all things, does not uh, live in temples made by man Uh, and by human hands as though he needed anything. So, you know, by definition, this true God is not dependent on anything from us as humans. And again, that's in contrast to the pagan gods who uh, needed man to, uh, you know, to uh, try to persuade them to do uh, their bidding uh, for him. You know, he is not dependent on anything from us, from human beings. Paul goes on, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So in other words, God is not dependent on human beings. Rather, we are dependent upon him. It is he himself who gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And, you know, this is a good place to pause and just, uh, just think about that. That we are totally dependent upon God for life and for breath and for everything. You know, I think at times in, in the world we have a tendency to uh, think of ourselves as being so self-sufficient Uh, not dependent upon anyone or anything certainly not upon God we take for granted the things in the world around us Uh, we call things ours Uh, we say we worked hard for this to get this and so on and we just totally forget that we are dependent upon God for life itself first of all for every breath that we draw and for everything that we have in this world Um, You know, there's so much negative that has come from the coronavirus and, of course, the death and the suffering that we see around us. But perhaps one good thing that comes from this is we see how totally uh, dependent we are upon God for life and for everything we have around us. Uh, When things are going great and, uh, you know, we're uh, uh, getting everything going our way, There can definitely be a tendency to forget about God, to keep God at arm's distance in our life, to think that we really don't need God after all. Paul here makes a very good point, that it is from God that we derive all these things as gifts. Uh, Verse 26, and he made from one man, this would be Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. So it is, from, it is from Adam that this same God who created all things has given life, uh, human life in this instance, to all, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. So he, another, this is another way of saying he rules over all life, over all nations, over all rulers, and this too is good for us to keep in mind. Uh, He sets the boundaries. Uh, Everything uh, marches to the beat of his drum. Verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Um, It is because of his generous provision, we might say, that uh, you would think at least that people should try and find this gracious God who is the God of all the living and the God who provides all. uh, And they perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Well, feeling our way in the dark might be a good good way of putting this, spiritually speaking. Uh, Of course, Scripture tells us that we are uh, conceived and born in a spiritual darkness. It's like being in a totally dark room, uh, totally unable to see. Uh, I remember on my vicarage uh, year, that's a one year internship year while you are in seminary. My vicarage year was spent at a a Lutheran church in San Francisco, California. And being in San Francisco, uh, my wife and I uh, uh, went on the tour of Alcatraz, which is a now a national park, but at one time was a, an actual operating functioning prison uh, in the middle of San Francisco Bay. And on that tour, one of the things they did was uh, put the tour group in uh, the cell that was one of the cells that uh, was the solitary confinement section of the prison. And they would actually, after you were all in there, they actually would close the door. And let me tell you, it was so dark in there when they closed the door that you could not even see your hand in the front of your face. Uh, It was incredible. Just just total darkness. And scripturally speaking, that's the way we are conceived and born spiritually speaking. And so you, you almost detect here in Paul's language a kind of a groping in the dark for the true God. And... Of course, uh, God has to reveal himself to us. The, the true God reveals himself to us. Uh, it's not that, that we find him. You know, we can conclude when we look at the creation around us that there must be a God out there somewhere. And maybe we can conclude that this God must be uh, quite powerful and quite um, intelligent, we might say. Uh, just by looking at the vastness of the creation and how complex it all is. And that's about all uh, we can conclude, uh, that there must be a God out there because this uh, world around us is just too uh, magnificent, too complex to have just popped into existence by itself. If we want to know more about that, though, God has to reveal it to us. And that's what he does, of course, in the scriptures, and what he did in person when he came here in the person of Jesus Christ. That first kind of knowledge that we can just, you know, that there must be a God out there somewhere, uh, we pick up, is called the natural knowledge of God at times. Uh, And the other type of knowledge is called revealed knowledge, the knowledge of things that God has to reveal to us, such as the way to salvation. Uh, the, the the eternal life that we have through Christ, and a whole lot of other things that we just can't pick up by going out there and looking at the creation. And so uh, Paul is talking here that you know the, the generous God who provides all things in this created world. You would think that because of His generous provision, that people would be seeking Him. And so. Paul goes on to say, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And Paul is actually quoting here and following, uh, let let me go on and finish here. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So Paul is even quoting their own poets to them here. And we shouldn't find anything wrong about this. It's not wrong for Paul to do that. He is simply saying, look, at your your own poets have said some of the same things, and he's quoting from them. Um, you know, even the uh, pagan poet, I've got a note here that uh, a pagan poet in 600 B.C., Epimenides, said, God is the creator and sustainer of all life. And then the second one, for, for we are indeed his offspring— uh, there were two poets, one named Erratus and Cleanthus, who made a similar statement in 300 BC. So Paul is simply saying here look at your own poets have concluded the same things that I have been saying. And going on, uh, and, and let me just say this I mean, oftentimes in a sermon, a pastor might quote, uh, from a modern-day uh, writer or thinker. or So again, it's, it's not wrong to do this. It doesn't make this now all of a sudden not the word of God anymore. Uh, Paul is simply using their own sources to uh, say that, see, even, even your own people are saying this. Uh, verse 29, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So look at here, he's saying, if we are God's offspring, we ought to think about God as being material things like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. I mean, that's even not logical, that man makes something that he then worships as a god. You know, it's the other way around, that this God, this one true God, is actually the one who has created and made everything around us. I mean, it just even logically, if you step back and look at it. And just stopping for a moment here again, thinking about how today people can make false gods out of things today, uh, just as the people did back in Athens. And Paul mentions here, of course, uh, you know, gold or silver or stone. Uh, just think of those things that people make most important in their own life. Uh, Luther, in his explanation of the first uh, commandment, you shall have no other gods, says we should fear and love God, fear, love, and trust in God, rather, uh, above all things. And so, you know, it is for people today to ask themselves, what do I fear, love, and trust in above all things? I mean, for some people, it can be their career, Uh, It can be a car, a house, clothing. I mean, almost anything uh, can be uh, turned into a god, we might say, in our lives. It's not that they are true gods, of course, but we can turn them into true gods. Just as people did back then, uh, just as people did certainly in Old Testament times, uh, nothing new when it comes to this. And so, um, but now he says, uh, I'm sorry, verse 30, The times of ignorance, times of uh, no knowledge about the true God, about Christ, God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So there is a universal call here, Paul is saying, for people to repent. And to repent means to turn around, go the other way in your life. It is uh, literally means a change of mind, metanoia in Greek, It means to do a 180, we might say, and to turn away from whatever was sinful and turn toward God. True repentance is not only having contrition and sorrow for our sin, but it is also believing the the forgiveness that is ours through Jesus Christ, through his life and death and resurrection once again. That is true repentance. It's not just sorrow over sin. That certainly should be there. But it's also faith and trust in Jesus Christ for forgiveness and life. So, going on here. uh, So, God has called upon all people everywhere to repent. Notice no one is excluded. Verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. So, the standard for judgment on the last day will be righteousness, and it is God's righteousness, his holiness, his blamelessness, his innocence, uh, all those other uh, synonyms for righteousness. Um, and the good news for us of, as Christians, of course, is that by God's grace, through faith on account of Jesus Christ, We are clothed in Christ's righteousness and stand before God completely blameless, both now and on that day. And of course we know the man that has been appointed to judge on that day is none other than Christ himself. Uh, We get that corroborated from other scriptural sources. And of this, the fact that he's going to judge in righteousness on a day he has appointed through Christ, of this he has given assurances to all by raising him from the dead so as if uh, they didn't know who uh, he was talking about uh... paul says here if you had any doubts it's christ who is raised from the dead the one he has raised from the dead it's kind of interesting this is where our lesson ends but the very next verse talks about the reaction that some of the athenians had when paul talked about the resurrection of the dead uh... some it says you know laughed at this it was it was silly uh, and we're reminded there of uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, where again the message of the cross is foolishness as well. And so they, they scoff, they laugh at any, any talk of a resurrection from the dead. But others found it interesting, Paul, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Luke writes here, and uh, say, you know, we want to hear you again on this. So, you know, very interesting reaction. Uh, it runs a range from complete scoffing and laughter uh, to, you know, that's interesting. I want to hear more about this. And I guess you'd say the same kind of reaction uh, exists today. Uh, when the preaching of the cross and the resurrection takes place, uh, to some people, it's just plain uh, foolishness. Um, you know, oftentimes at a funeral, I'll be preaching. And I can just tell, when I get to talking about the crucified Christ and the risen Christ, I can just tell there are some people who are nodding their heads yes. And you know that they are the ones who truly believe and trust in Jesus Christ. Sometimes they're even smiling and nodding their head. And I love to see that uh, when I'm in the pulpit preaching. But unfortunately, there are also times at funerals when people are there not because they are there as Christians or uh, they have come to worship the true God. Instead, they're there simply out of uh, respect uh, for the person who has, has died uh, or they're a friend of the family and, and so they feel it is the thing that, that they should do. Um, and uh, sometimes you can just tell. Uh, they're either staring off into the distance, not really paying much attention. Um, maybe sometimes, uh, you know, even even kind of having a, a sort of a doubting look on their face. Um, and again, uh, I always think, though, I always think this is one opportunity. Who knows how many other opportunities uh, those people will have in their lives to hear about the Lord of life, Jesus Christ. And so uh, we definitely, at funerals, have people there who perhaps one of the last times in their life they'll be able to hear about life, death, and Jesus Christ. Uh, So we obviously don't hesitate uh, in in preaching that. Just as Paul here never hesitated, uh, no matter where he was, here in Athens, in the Areopagus, no matter where he is, he's preaching Jesus Christ, life, death, and resurrection. And we both at funerals and at weddings uh, as well, same thing there. We always preach Jesus Christ and him crucified, risen, ascended to be at the right hand of the Father. So, with that, let's move on now to the second lesson. And we are continuing uh, a series here in the second lesson of, of walking through 1 Peter, the epistle 1 Peter. And uh, so let's just begin now. I see we're time-wise; better uh, keep moving here. First Peter three. We're going to read verses thirteen through twenty-two today. Verse thirteen: Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you suffer for the righteous for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Uh, first of all, the uh, Christians through who to whom rather Peter is writing. Uh, we think that th- this is the starting of some persecution uh, of Christians. We think it was by uh, Jews at that time. Uh, we see that uh, in the book of Acts, and it certainly is a starting phases, uh, certainly here. And other places in the epistle of First Peter, we get some hints about um, you know, their, their names being slandered, about property being lost, and so on. Uh, so they are beginning to suffer. Uh, these are Christians beginning to suffer. And, and Peter says, you know, if you're suffering for righteousness' sake, that is the, the gospel, you will be blessed. And that, of course, is blessed through Christ. Uh, you will uh, be given strength and eternal life. And he says, have no fear of them, those who persecute, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. So he says here, you know, don't fear those who are beginning to trouble you or persecute you, but rather in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Um, So, you know, always be ready, he says, you know, to give a, an answer or a defense. Um, honoring Christ as the Lord and holy, of course, is what we as believers in Christ do. And Peter is saying here simply, just, just do that. You know, he is our Lord in terms of our God, uh, equivalent to Yahweh in the Old Testament, and holy, again, righteous, innocent, and, and, um, uh, blameless. And though always being prepared. So always be ready to make a defense. Now that word defense, uh, is a Greek word apologia. And that's where we get the word apology. And what Peter is saying here is, you know, you're not, don't always be ready to apologize. That's not what he means here. Always be ready to give a defense or an apologia. Um, there is a a discipline in the world that is called apologetics and apologetics is the the study we might say of, of defending the Christian faith, of giving uh, logical, reasonable defenses for the Christian faith in the face of other disciplines. Uh, um, for example, people attacking well, we just talked about one, attacking the resurrection of the dead as something that is simply nonsensical. Um, uh, As uh, even sometimes a belief in God, uh, in the case of atheists, as being completely nonsensical in this world. And apologetics would be, again, the, the discipline or the practice of making a defense of the Christian faith. Not only using scripture, however, using other sources as well. Lutherans traditionally have not been um, real active in uh, the field of apologetics. Uh, there are some noted Lutherans who are, certainly. Uh, it has more been, I think, uh, in latter years, in, in uh, recent years rather, uh, the evangelicals, uh, neo evangelicals who have been uh, very active. And there are some, uh, if you go in a bookstore sometime, uh, once they're opened up again, or if you go online, uh, just type in sometime. Uh, apologetics, and you 'll have a whole host of of books and i 'm sure blog articles and others that that will come up. but Paul says here, be ready at any time. be prepared in other words, the old uh, boy Scout motto be prepared uh to give a defense um, and notice there it's for uh, when someone asks about the reason for the hope that you have, so someone notices that you have hope in the in instead of despair instead of gloom and doom and darkness in this world you have hope and if somebody asks you hey how come you're always ha- have uh, this hope or you're always so happy or uh, you know you you always uh, seem to be so cheerful and you don't let things get you down why is that and paul says be ready be ready to give an account to give an answer and you know i know that Uh, That's one thing that many people are afraid to do. Uh, Many times we pass up opportunities, we just keep our mouths shut uh, when we could uh, give an apologia, give a defense, uh, give a witness, uh, another word that's used other places, uh, for the hope that is within us. And of course that hope is Jesus Christ and the uh, forgiveness and everlasting life that we have and that everyone could have through him. So and Paul says, then, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So that's the that's the uh, the manner you might say that we are to have gentleness, not insulting someone, not um, you know berating someone, um, not uh, you know just absolutely trying to um, uh, argue them into the Christian faith is simply giving the reason for the hope that you have. And remember that conversion is not our work. It's not arguing someone to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, It's not uh, somehow presenting the very best argument humanly possible and then they're going to believe. No. Remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, that faith comes from hearing and hearing the message of Christ. And even if someone asks you a question, that you don't know the answer to and you can always use that as another opportunity uh... to say something like you know that's a good question i really honestly don't know the answer to that let me think about that uh... let me do a little study in the in the bible about that or even let me ask my pastor about that and i'd like to come back and talk with you more about that so it even is it opens up a, a, a future conversation uh, even if you're stumped, so to speak, and don't know the answer. So we, we treat people with gentleness and respect as we are giving this defense. Just think of the way Jesus dealt with people, you know, with the gentleness. Uh, for example, the woman caught in adultery, or the, the Samaritan woman at the well uh, in John chapter 4. You know, treated people with respect and gentleness, and that is the way Peter says we treat people, um, if we are giving this, this defense for the hope we have. Verse 16, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So if someone's going to try to uh, slander you, uh, your good name and your reputation, and attack it, uh, we, we, they'll be put to shame because... Uh, the, by the fact that their statements are false, and others will see that their statements are false. This good conscience we'll come to a little bit later on in verse 21. Uh, we have a good conscience via our baptism. I'll save that for verse 21. Verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good than if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And so it's better uh, you know, it's better to suffer. You might say to bear a cross. That's that's exactly the term that's used in the scriptures for uh, suffering on account of the fact that we are Christians. Um, than for doing evil, of course. As Christians, uh, we shouldn't be found suffering for doing evil. Um, now, let's let's go on uh, just in time wise again. We better move on. Verse eighteen. Uh, Here's the example, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. So Peter puts Christ out here as an example of someone suffering even after doing good, and of course (laughs) doing better than good, uh, doing perfect, uh, completely sinless in his thoughts, words, and deeds. And notice there the great irony. He is the righteous one suffering for the unrighteous. And, of course, that's all of us. How unjust that really is. In fact, the most unjust um, uh, conviction and, and execution ever in the history of mankind. That he, Christ, might bring us to God. And we think of Christ as the only means there is to God. As he says in John chapter 14, uh, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we know, of course, that um, it is God's desire that we are drawn to him. And it's through Christ that we do come to him. Um, Being put to death in the flesh, that's Christ now, being put to death in his body, but made alive in the spirit. So at Christ's death, of course, his body uh, remains here. He was he came, became alive in the spirit. Remember on the cross, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then a little bit later on, as he is dying, uh, I believe it is Luke who says of him, he breathes his last and gave up his spirit. So it is that spirit or that soul uh, and that's exactly what we believe happens at death from the scriptures uh, today. We would say that that body obviously remains here, talking about a Christian who dies, and the soul or the spirit goes to be with the Lord. Uh, in Philippians 1, Paul talks about that. Uh, that For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then a little bit later on in Philippians 1, he says that um, it is my desire to depart and be with the Lord which is far better. So it is gain and it is far better uh, when the soul goes to be with the Lord, awaiting that last day when Christ will return and raise all of us up physically, bodily, raise us up on the last day, never to die again. Um, so and now, Christ was made alive, Paul, uh, Peter says, in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now here's the uh, one clear verse of uh, very few verses, frankly, in all of Scripture that talk about Christ's descent into hell. Um, we we uh, state our, our belief in this when we, when we state in the Creed he descended into hell, and we believe he went to hell not to suffer any longer. He proclaimed it is finished on the cross. There was no more suffering to do but rather, we say, to proclaim his victory. Uh, And it is the first step in his state of exaltation, where he did make full use of his divine powers. And so he went there to proclaim uh, his victory over sin, death, and the grave to all who were there. Just another aside, and I I know we're getting late, but uh, thinking of Alcatraz again, uh, on the tour of Alcatraz, uh, we were told that on certain evenings, uh, the prisoners in, in Alcatraz on that island in the middle of the San Francisco Bay could hear the laughter of parties and the clanging of, of, of glasses and dishes and silverware while they were stuck in their jail cell. And just think of what must have gone through their heads when they're hearing all the laughter, all the music from the parties and so on, kind of like these souls who are in hell, and Jesus comes to proclaim the victory over sin, death, and the grave that will not be theirs. Wow. Feeling even, even worse at that point. But he says about those spirits who were in hell, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, Well, the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Well, among those uh, unbelievers were the ones Peter is speaking of here, uh, the ones who did not obey back in Noah's day. And we think of how corrupt and bad things were at that time. Uh, Back, uh, Just to read just a short section from Genesis chapter 6, Uh, This is verse 5 and following. This is again back in Noah's day. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Wow. You cannot get much worse than that. And here comes a shocking verse. Verse 6. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Wow. Wow. What a slamming statement, uh, you know, of just how how bad things were. It actually grieved God. It caused him sorrow that he had even made man. Verse 7, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Again, what a devastating statement. And here's what Peter is referring to here, that the water of the flood in essence brought cleansing, brought in its judgment, it brought cleansing to the face of the earth and God in effect, without recreating, but God in effect starts over now with the eight people, the eight persons he says here, that were brought safely through the water. Well, of course, that would be Noah and his wife, and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives. And those are the eight people that he is referencing here who were brought through the, through the water of the flood, which was cleansing. Here comes a great verse in verse uh, 22. Baptism now which corresponds to this, which corresponds to the water of the flood, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What a statement. Baptism, which corresponds to the water of the flood and its cleansing uh, power, uh, now saves you. So, Here is one of the statements in Scripture that that credits to baptism salvation. We think of Acts 2 verse 38 where at Pentecost Peter also says, when when he is asked what should we do, Peter says, repent each one of you and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. And so here again, we have throughout the New Testament uh, references to baptism and salvation. And again, just real briefly, uh, Lutherans hold sacram- to be sacraments those things which have three characteristics that they are, number one, commanded or instituted by God or by Christ, that they have a visible element, in this case, in baptism, water is that visible element. And, very important, that they deliver the forgiveness of sins. Here again, baptism saves you. Uh, And here is where we part company with uh, uh, others in uh, certain Reformed camps, Baptists, for example, certainly, and others, who see baptism not as God's work in us, but rather as our work before God, our profession of faith before God. No, in the scriptures, baptism is always spoken of in the passive sense. We are baptized, and God is at work in and through baptism. So there's a correspondence made here that Peter makes between baptism and the flood, the eight people who are saved through the waters of baptism, and of course the salvation that God brings about through the water and the word of baptism. And just as a small point here, many of the baptismal fonts that you will see are eight-sided. And one of the reasons, anyway, that they are eight-sided is the fact that is a reference to this verse right here. That the eight people who were saved, so also baptism now saves you. And uh, the other reason, of course, is the eighth day being the day that Christ rose from the dead, burning new life uh, on Easter Sunday. Uh, Finally, just to finish this out, uh, the good conscience that is referred to here, of course the only way to have a good conscience is through sins forgiven and righteousness given uh, through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he says, verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And, of course, the right hand of God, God does not have a right hand. He is spirit, of course, and those who worship, worship him in spirit and truth. Only in Jesus Christ did God take on flesh and blood, of course. And so this right hand of God is a way of speaking of the position of power and authority uh, in all of creation, in heaven and earth. And that is where Christ is seated. Uh, that's where he resides, that, that uh, place of all honor, glory, power, and authority. And uh, uh, everything has been given to him in his glorified state by the Father. Now, um, I see that we have very little time left. I apologize. Let's get into the gospel lesson at least and cover at least as much as we can before time runs out. Uh, We're going to be in John 14 here, verses 15 through 21. Um, This is Maundy Thursday evening. Christ is in the upper room uh, with his disciples, of course, in less than 24 hours. He is going to be hanging on a cross And he speaks words of comfort to them, first of all. Um, He promises the coming of the Holy Spirit to them, uh, and that they, his disciples, will not be left alone and without help. So his basic purpose here is to comfort them and to assure them that he is going to send the Helper, the Holy Spirit. Let's start with verse 14. We'll get as far as we can. I'm sorry, with verse 15 of John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, he's not implying here that they don't love him. He is simply stating a conditional uh, fact. In other words, if you love me, it follows then that you will keep my commandments. So it's like saying, if a person loves me, then they will do this. This is the first time in the Gospel of John that there has been talk by Jesus of loving him. He has spoken already of his love for them, of God's love for the world, and of uh, the fact that they should love one another and and other people. This is the first time that uh, in the gospel he speaks of love directed toward him. And notice what it results in, the keeping of the commandments. Uh, Kind of interesting that we're not talking about keeping the commandments here in order to win God's favor or his love. It's in response to God already loving us and uh, making us his children. And so how is the Christian to act? Well, where do I go to find now what's pleasing in the sight of God? Where do I go uh, to find what pleases him in uh, the way I live my life, well, I go to the commandments, and even in a broader sense, I go to the law. And we call this the th- so-called third use of the law. It is the Christian use of the law, not to condemn me of my sins or show me my sins, that's the second use, not to uh, be the basis upon which our, our society and our, our uh, uh, culture and laws are formed, that's the first use of the law, this is the third use, or the Christian use of the law. And so it follows then, Christ says, that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And verse 16, and what's he going to do? And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper um, to be with you forever. Uh, This helper, the word in Greek is parakletos, And that's where you may have heard of the word paraclete. Uh, Literally means someone who uh, is called to your side. Someone who comes to your side in order to help you. Um, It is sometimes uh, used in a legal sense of your defense attorney. Someone who stands or sits there beside you at the defendant's table and is there to help you. Uh, to be your advocate, you might say. Um, In this case, he will be your advocate, or someone to stand beside you forever, even the Spirit of truth. So it is obviously the Holy Spirit whom Christ is going to ask the Father to send, and he will come. He is the Spirit of truth because he only speaks of truth. And he goes on to say, Jesus goes on to say, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. Boy, how true. The world cannot see, does not even know the Holy Spirit, and especially the work of the Holy Spirit to point to Jesus Christ as the Savior. For he dwells with you and will be in you. Uh, It's that spirit who comes and, and actually dwells or tabernacles in us and with us, just as certainly as Christ came and tabernacled or dwelt with us and dwells in us today as well. I'm going to stop with just the one promise at the beginning of verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. He says that, of course, to the disciples, first of all, uh, that he's not going to simply leave them and go away and leave them to be on their own, you know, defenseless and without any means. Um, he's going to come, uh, he says, to them, and he's already spoken about how he is going to send the Holy Spirit. And boy, the same thing can be said of us today. He does not leave us as orphans. Um, first of all, the Holy, same Holy Spirit has come and dwelt with us and in us and does so even to this day. Christ himself continues to come to us in the Word, the written Word, and of course uh, in the sacrament of the altar uh, where we receive not only bread and wine but the body and blood of Christ and the forgiveness of all of our sin. We are far from orphans. Uh, He continues to be with us each and every day to walk with us uh, as we travel through this world. Well, I'm going to have to unfortunately uh, give up right there. We had just uh, three verses left. I'm gonna, we'll have to save that uh, perhaps for another time. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. Amen.